Welcome to Rereading Our Childhood, the podcast where we discuss the books that made us who we are today. I'm Deborah Kalb, and today my co-host Mary Grace McGeehan and I will be discussing The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster, which was published in 1961. So Mary Grace, can you tell us about your memories of reading The Phantom Tollbooth as a child? Yes, I have very, very clear memory because my sixth grade teacher read it to us in school. And we just loved it so much. She was a great teacher in terms of getting us excited about reading. I remember she read Johnny Tremaine to us. There are so many things that Jester does in the book that when you read it as an adult, you just think they're clever. But when you're a kid, they just feel so magical. And one thing I remember especially is the dodecahedron. You know, that means a 12-sided three-dimensional shape. And so this dodecahedron has a different expression on his face on each of the sides and however he feels he shows that side and we just all thought that a dodecahedron was so fascinating (laughs) and I remember another concept that was new to me was the doldrums which was this place that was all foggy and there were these creatures that just fall asleep in the middle of a sentence and I don't think we knew what the doldrums was I think we learned about that word through that book So I love the book so much, and I bought a copy after the teacher read it to us, and this is the copy that I still have. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yes, and as you can see, it's a little, well, you can see our listeners have, (laughs) it's a little worse for the wear, and little chunks of cardboard kept falling off as I was reading it. The pages are very yellowed, and it has my little... um, what do you call that thing that you put in the book to put your name on? Name plate? Oh, like a book plate. Yeah. Right. It has a book plate with my <laughs> signature wow. and my phone number and a quote from John Dunn on the book plate. So That's it's just amazing. This physical copy just brings back so many memories. Yeah. So what about you? What do you remember about uh, the Phantom? You Talk? know, it's weird. I know that I read it, but I don't have like a distinct memory of reading it. I have a vague memory of a teacher reading it, but I don't know if it's actually my teacher reading it to my class or someone else was telling me about their teacher Mm. reading it to their class. And this isn't like you telling me years ago that your teacher read it to you. It's like at the time, like being, you know, an elementary school student and remembering somebody's teacher reading it to their class. But I have a feeling if it was my teacher I would remember that. So maybe like another kid's teacher was reading it and I was kind of intrigued by the idea. The main memory I have is the cover of the book, actually, because it's kind of this iconic picture with Milo and the dog, you know, talk. That's like sort of this memory I have of it. And I just remember kind of being a book that was really popular and everyone had read it kind of. And I know that I did read it, but I don't specifically remember. Before we go any further, for people who haven't read the book or don't remember very well, like maybe me, we should probably give an overview of the book. So Mary Grace, could you do that? It's a story about Milo, who's a boy who's always bored. One day he finds a mysterious package in his room, which turns out to be a toll booth. So he drives through the toll booth in his toy electric car, and he ends up in a mysterious world called the Lands Beyond. Two of the lands, Dictionopolis and Digitopolis, are ruled by rival brothers who have driven out the beloved princess's rhyme and reason. This has led to a lot of conflict. Milo sets out on a journey to bring them back, along with his companions, 
the watchdog Tok, who has a clock on the side of his body, and the humbug, who's this very pretentious and self-satisfied bug. So that's the frame of the story, but the real story is more about the many strange characters that Milo meets along the way. I've already mentioned the dodecahedron, and another one of my favorites was Chroma the Great. He's a conductor whose orchestra plays not music, but the colors of the day, from the sunrise to the sunset. Milo learns something with each of these encounters and starts to see the world as a much more interesting place. Yeah, exactly. What did you think as an adult reading the book compared to your memories of, you know, reading it as a kid? I enjoyed it. Juster is a clever and witty writer, and there's no book quite like it. I would say the story that's the most like it is probably The Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a unique book. And the illustrations are brilliant. This is one of those books, like we discussed this with Henry Reed, with the illustrations by Robert McCloskey, that the writer and the illustrator really both bring something so important to the story. And the story just would not be the same without the illustrations. And I would say that even more so with this book than with Henry Reed, because for one thing, there are so many illustrations. I know. I was really struck by that too. I mean, there's illustrations pretty much on every other page almost, and there's full page illustrations. And the art is such a huge part of the book. Definitely. Exactly. I can't think of another children's book other than a picture book that has so many illustrations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really noticed that too. And like, as I was reading it, I mean, I really admired the wordplay and the Mm -hmm. cleverness. I kept thinking of The Wizard of Oz as I was reading this, because it really reminded me of that. I mean, someone in this magical land with these companions like the humbug was hilarious. I mean, I like mm-hmm. the humbug and the watchdog talk who literally has a clock in him. I mean, he's a watchdog. Mm-hmm. Just like Milo's relationship with them is so much like Dorothy with the scarecrow and the tin man and the cowardly lion. And I just, right. I was thinking about that a lot. You know, you're just kind of going along on the road. Like it's not the yellow brick road, but they're in a car driving along a road. And, mm-hmm. you know, It definitely reminded me of that. But I think the main focus of this book, it's not so much on personalities. I mean, of the main character, Milo, he doesn't really come through as having much of a personality, but it's the personalities Mm -hmm. of who he meets along the way and the wordplay. I mean, the use of words, you know, the way like you were saying about some of the words like doldrums that a kid might not know what doldrums, what that word is, but the sort of visual depiction of people being like in the doldrums was incredibly clever. One thing I'd I'd say about the rereading experience is sometimes you read a book like Harriet the Spy or A Wrinkle in Time, and there's a whole other deeper level that -hmm. you can read it on as an adult. And I would say in this book, there's a lot of wordplay and a lot of sort of puns and references that probably a child wouldn't pick up on, but there's not another level to it the way there is with those books. So in terms of a rereading experience as an adult, I felt like I enjoyed revisiting my sixth grade self that was reading this book. Not that I didn't enjoy it at the story, but that was the aspect of it that I enjoyed the most. Yeah, now I can see that. I can see that. Were there aspects of the book you felt haven't aged well? 
actually a lot fewer than there were in a lot of the other books that we read. And I think the thing is, if you're writing a book about an imaginary kingdom, there are fewer pitfalls that you can fall into in terms of people saying things or writing things in a way that we wouldn't do it today. I would say a couple of things. There were some words that Jester used that we wouldn't use today, descriptions of people. But overall, I would say that there wasn't very much of that, probably less of that than there were in any other book that we've read. One other thing, if you're thinking about the whole aspect of, so before there were Dictionopolis and Digitopolis, it was one kingdom, and that was founded by the father of the current rulers. And he came into this kingdom and it was full of these uncivilized evil people and he civilized the kingdom. And that whole concept has a colonial kind of feeling to it. But if you're talking about fairy tales, I mean, there's certain things that are just elements of fairy tales and that's a pretty common one. So what about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it has you know, really very few things that didn't age just because it is a sort of fairy tale. It is taking place in a fantasy land. I mean, there's a lot of sort of tropes like, you know, the princess is having to be rescued. You know, that's like a sort of fairy tale trope that, you know, that it's all three of the main characters who are going on the adventure are male and the rescue Mm -hmm. and the princesses. But, you know, that's a fairy tale thing, you know, an old fashioned kind of thing. I mean, maybe if the book had been written today, one of the three people on the quest would have been female, you know, something like that. But I mean, there weren't a lot of references to things that would be sort of objectionable today. Right. I agree. So we've talked about the book being somewhat literary as far as like all of these terms that Juster throws in there. But, you know, we've talked about in other episodes, books that the characters are reading. Did you have any thoughts about that? Well, the most noteworthy thing was the books that Milo wasn't reading. Exactly. Yes, because at the beginning, it says that he has a bedroom full of books that he considers it too much trouble to read. I mean, this is part of his whole malaise. And I mean, he probably shouldn't be too literal about it, but he's very, very depressed. You know, he just sees the world as all gray. His toys aren't interesting. His books aren't interesting. So there's this whole potential magical world of books out there that he just can't tap into because he's so depressed. And I'm sure by the end of his adventures, when he's back at home, he will find these books much more interesting than he did at the beginning of the story. Well, I think that's kind of what's hinted at at the end. Right. I mean, not to have spoilers, but yeah, I mean, no, I totally agree. I mean, he doesn't read, and yet the book itself is so literary. So I right. thought that was just a really interesting juxtaposition. Right. He falls in love with words, and there's so much, you know, obviously you can tell from the names that Dictionopolis is the kingdom of words and Digitopolis yeah. is the kingdom of numbers. And he falls in love with both words and numbers. And in Dictionopolis, there's the person that sells letters and the words are made out of these delicious letters. And so yeah. just a lot of celebration of books, reading and words. Yeah. And music too. And music. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So you talked about the edition of the book that you read. So that was your childhood copy, right? The book that I read was the 50th anniversary edition, and it had 
a sort of forward in the book by Maurice Sendak that had been oh. written for a 35th anniversary edition of the book. So that was kind of interesting. He talks about the book and about himself and the author and illustrator as being part of this sort of generation of writers for children. So speaking of the author and the illustrator who are Norton Juster and Jules Pfeiffer, why don't we talk about them a little bit? It turns out the two of them were friends and housemates Mm -hmm. and ended up working on the book together because they already knew each other, which, you know, you talked earlier about how well the text and the illustrations go together. And I'm sure in a large part, that's because the two of them knew each other and appreciated each other's work so much. Norton Juster was born in 1929 in Brooklyn in New York. His parents were Eastern European Jewish immigrants. And as a child, he enjoyed the Wizard of Oz books, which we talked about earlier. So that was definitely an influence on him. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, where he studied architecture, and he graduated in 1952. He also studied city planning at the University of Liverpool, on a Fulbright Fellowship. He spent several years in the Navy's engineering corps, and he worked for an architectural firm in New York City. So the New York Times obituary of Juster mentioned that the inspiration for the Phantom Tollbooth came from a boy Juster met at a restaurant. So this is a quote from Juster recalling this incident at a later point. He suddenly asked, what's the biggest number there is? It was a startling question, the kind that children are so good at. I asked him what he thought the biggest number was and then told him to add one to it. He did the same to me. We continued back and forth and had a marvelous time talking about infinity and realizing that you simply couldn't get there from here. I was intrigued and thrown back into my own childhood memories and the way I used to think about the mysteries of life. So I started to compose what I thought would be a little story about a child's confrontation with numbers and words and meanings and other strange concepts that are imposed on children. So I thought that was a great quote. Yeah. 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 I thought that he was going to meet a kid in the restaurant that just thought everything was really boring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, The Phantom Tollbooth turned out to be Juster's most famous book, but he wrote a number of other books, including The Dot and the Line, which was published in 1963. Both that and The Phantom Tollbooth were made into animated films, and The Phantom Tollbooth was also adapted into a musical. Juster continued working as an architect, and he taught at Hampshire College in Massachusetts. Juster passed away in 2021. Jules Pfeiffer was also born in 1929 and is still living. He is a cartoonist, author, playwright, and screenwriter who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1986 for editorial cartooning. His family was also Jewish. At age 16, Pfeiffer started assisting the cartoonist Will Eisner, and after working with him for about a decade, Pfeiffer became a staff cartoonist at The Village Voice. He was known as a satirical cartoonist. He also has taught at Stony Brook, Southampton, and he teamed up with Norton Juster again in 2010, almost a half century after the publication of the Phantom Tollbooth to create the book, The Odious Ogre. Mary Grace, do you have any other comments on either of them? Yes. In terms of Jules Pfeiffer, I remember that we had a paperback of his cartoons when we were kids. 
And they were, you know, as you said, they're probably from the Village Voice and they were satirical and political. And I just remember reading them and thinking, oh, this is so sophisticated. This shows yeah. me this world that's out there. It's kind of like Doonesbury, but before that. Yeah. And so I just thought that was really intriguing. And another thing I wanted to talk about was about three or four years ago, there was an interview with Jules Pfeiffer on the New York Times book review podcast that I listened to. Pfeiffer was talking about how he met Norton Juster. And I guess they were neighbors and they ran into each other when they were throwing away the trash. And so Pfeiffer is saying in this interview, he said, and so then he started wisecracking and then I started wisecracking and then we were both wisecracking. And I just thought it was so funny. These two guys in Brooklyn or wherever they were just like wisecracking when they were taking out the trash and then it leading to this legendary collaboration. So I thought that was That's incredible. Yeah, they were housemates. So yeah, that's amazing. Would you say the Phantom Tollbooth has had an impact on your life? I would in the sense that I think it brought magic to things that we were learning about in school. Also in sixth grade, we were learning about things like three-dimensional objects. And remember geodesic domes? We were always learning about that. Oh, yeah. Did you learn about that? Yeah, yeah, it was just a huge thing in the 1970s. So this whole idea of shapes, it was so much more than just learning the math behind them because mm-hmm. like the dodecahedron had just kind of brought that to life. And I would say the same thing with learning a word like the doldrums. It just gave a whole other dimension to this word. And there were these men in the kingdom of Dictionopolis who all looked alike and they would each say something and they would say the same thing in different words. And also in sixth grade, we all had to have a thesaurus and we were always uh-huh. looking at things in this thesaurus. So I think that idea of synonyms, it just sort of brought all this stuff to life in a way that would be much flatter and more boring if you just learned about these things in school. So how about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess given that I don't remember reading it, I can't say that it had a big impact on my life. But I think all the concepts you're talking about are so true. I mean, I think like the idea of bringing a concept to life through a character is Mm -hmm. wonderful. And they do that so much throughout the book. I mean, through the text and the illustration. You know, I think that you really see like what you were saying, synonyms or doldrums or whatever it might be. You see it sort of brought to life and visualized and it's much more likely to stick in your head that way. Although apparently Mm -hmm. it didn't stick in mine, but I think in (laughs) most most people's it did. Mm -hmm. So did you read any other books by Norton Juster? I read The Dot and the Line, but I don't remember very much about it. I think I'm mixing it up with Harold and the Purple Crayon, but I think it was one of these allegories about shapes. And I remember it as being more of an illustrated book than a novel, but I really want to go and look at it because like I said, I, I read it, but I don't remember anything about it. How about you? The dot and the line sounds really familiar to me. But again, maybe I'm also mixing it up with Harold and the Purple Crayon. I don't know. Yeah, so Mm. I'm kind of curious to go back and see that. And I am curious also about the odious ogre. So I feel like I need to check that out too. Their collaboration in 2010. 
So did you see any of the adaptations? Of- I never saw them. Did you? No, I didn't. Apparently, there's, uh, as you said, there's a full-length adaptation of The Phantom Tollbooth, but there's also an adaptation of the scene where Milo watches the orchestra conducting Ah. the day and the colors. And then in that scene, the conductor goes to sleep, and Milo's supposed to wake him up in the morning, and Milo wakes up and figures he can conduct the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And so he starts doing that, but then all the colors start going crazy and yeah. the sun starts going and like a week goes by and like a minute. And that just seems like it would be such a great scene on film. So I would love to see that. Yeah, no, it definitely would be. An article in Smithsonian Magazine talked about Juster having synesthesia, which is- Oh, I saw um, something about that. Yeah, like senses get activated at the same time as the article describes it. And it says, Juster did not realize he had the syndrome until well into adulthood, but he recognizes that the phantom toll booth is littered with sensory transpositions. One of the most memorable passages demonstrating this rich metaphorical writing is a series of sunrises that Milo creates by conducting hundreds of musicians in a symphony of color that lights up the morning sky. And then Juster said, it is so liberating as a way of thinking. It is a sort of projector into new ways to understand. It is the kind of handicap that is an absolute positive in your life. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What other books would you recommend to fans of The Phantom Tollbooth? Well, we've talked a lot about The Wizard of Oz, but I've actually never read those books. I've only seen the movie. So what I would recommend is... Half Magic and the other Edward Eager books, because there's this sort of same sense of kids going off into this magical adventure and they're learning things about themselves along the way, running into all these, you know, sometimes human, sometimes non-human magical creatures. And it just has, I think, a similar sense of humor as The Phantom Tollbooth. So what about you? Yeah, I mean, that's a good comparison, too. I was thinking, like I said, of The Wizard of Oz the whole time that I was reading this, as I mentioned earlier. And I did read the book and read a bunch of the other in the series of Oz books, probably almost all of them. As a kid, I loved those books. And so I think there are so many similarities. And as I said earlier, like Milo's relationship with his traveling companions is very similar to Dorothy's with hers. Also. A lot of the reviews or comments on the Phantom Tollbooth compared it to Alice in Wonderland. So that's another book with similar themes. So would you recommend the Phantom Tollbooth to kids today? Yes, I would. I definitely would. I usually put some kind of caveat in here, but I just think this is a really fun book. I think other than the fairy tale tropes and some of the words that are used that I mentioned, There's not a lot that wouldn't be in a book today. I think it's aged very well. And I think it does have a sort of timelessness. And I think that the magic in the books about words and numbers, like the kid asking about what's the number after the biggest number and that sort of thing, that's something that kids will do, you know, generation after generation. So yes, I would recommend it. So how about you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think there's anything objectionable. And it is a classic with so many sort of amazing themes in it that I think kids 
like you said, there's a timeless quality to it. The kids would get pleasure out of the book, you know, for years to come. So I would agree about that. So I think it is time for us to read a favorite passage from the book. So would you like to read one? Okay, so I'm going to read from the first chapter in the book. And Milo has just found the toll booth in his room. And he's trying to figure out what it's all about. And there's a beautiful map that comes with it. The only trouble was that Milo had never heard of any of the places it indicated. And even the name sounded most peculiar. I don't think there really is such a country, he concluded after studying it carefully. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. And he closed his eyes and poked a finger at the map. Dictionopolis, read Milo slowly when he saw what his finger had chosen. Oh, well, I might as well go there as anywhere. He walked across the room and dusted the car off carefully. Then, taking the map and rule book with him, he hopped in and, for lack of anything better to do, drove slowly up to the toll booth. As he deposited his coin and roll pass, he remarked wistfully, I do hope this is an interesting game. Otherwise, the afternoon will be so terribly dull. That's really amazing. Because, yeah, that sort of sums up Milo at the beginning of his adventures. Mm -hmm. So I was going to read from a bit later in the book, but not too much later. And there's a scene... He's in a marketplace, okay, and at this chapter four, Confusion in the Marketplace. Milo could see crowds of people pushing and shouting their way among the stalls, buying and selling, trading and bargaining. Huge wooden-wheeled carts streamed into the market square from the orchards, and long caravans bound for the four corners of the kingdom made ready to leave. Sacks and boxes were piled high, waiting to be delivered to the ships that sailed the Sea of Knowledge, and off to one side, a group of minstrels sang songs to the delight of those either too young or too old to engage in trade. But above all, the noise and tumult of the crowd could be heard, the merchants' voices loudly advertising their products. Get your fresh-picked ifs, ands, and buts. Hey ya, hey ya, nice ripe wares and whens. Juicy, tempting words for sale. So that's like he's in this marketplace of words. So oh, I thought great. that was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there anything else about the book or anything else that you'd like to talk about? Not about the book, but this is our last episode of the season. It's our 20th episode, which is kind of hard to believe. It and is. Yeah. So we'll be taking a break until May. But of course, there are a lot of other episodes that people can go back and catch up on. But I just wanted to thank all of our listeners and the people that have shared their own childhood favorites on social media, which has been one of the highlights of this project. And yeah, last but absolutely. not least, yeah, our wonderful editor, Adam Linder, who's, this is one thing, if you don't do a podcast, you don't realize how much is involved other than just the recording, but he's just done an amazing job of making the podcast sound good. Thank you, Adam, from me too. Um, you've done incredible work. And so have you, Mary Grace. So thanks for coming up with this you idea too. and for bringing me along on the journey. <laughs> thanks for joining us on this episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review, which will help other children's book lovers find us. And please be in touch through our website, rereadingourchildhood.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on the Phantom Tollbooth or your own childhood favorites. You can also find Mary Grace at her blog, mylife100yearsago.com, and you can find me at debracalbooks.blogspot.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.